Hi everybody, this is Miranda with Starting a Counseling Practice uh, Podcast. And today we have something that's really fun and a little bit different. Um, it is such an interesting thing when you are designing your private practice and there are, you've heard so many different stories of different ways that people have done that effectively and passionately. And, um, and sometimes people want to do things that are kind of out of the box, but they don't know how to do it specifically in private practice. Uh, and one of the things that I've been asked about over the years is how can therapists who are passionate about private practice and are in private practice integrate research into their clinical work? How can they actually start to quantify and do some quantitative research as part of their private practice and do that in a way that's like really ethical? And for years, I've said, well, you'd really have to talk and make a relationship with your local university um, because you need their institutional review board. You're working with live people. You know, here's the process. And everyone gets very overwhelmed with that, by that process. And most universities are not really prepared to work with a clinician in private practice. So I was in uh, the ACA, the American Counseling Association's um, annual conference, and I met the amazing Sarah Atwood. Uh, she is the Director of Client Services at Integ Review IRB. She is uh, the head of an independent institutional review board, or IRB, which is one of the things that you need if you're going to be doing clinical research. And so I um, asked her if she would please, please, please come on the podcast, if we could interview her um, and get to know what this process looks like and talk a little bit about how other therapists are doing this. Um, ethically um, and appropriately and how this could possibly be something that you could integrate into the design of your private practice. So, hey, Sarah. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. <laughs> yeah, Sarah and I had some fun little technical difficulties getting uh, starting our thing. So we're both kind of like so ready to like have a conversation because <laughs> we've just been trying to get tech technology to work for 20 minutes, which is so silly. So, um, so go ahead, Sarah. So where would you like to get started? Where would you like to start the conversation? Yeah, what for sure. Um, so I would love to know a little bit about your background and how you ended up doing this work as being an IRB. How did you end up here? How was Integ Review born and developed? So I've been with Integrity now for just over three years. Um, I've known them a lot longer than that because I've been in the research world for, gosh, 20 years now. I'm dating myself. Um, but my background um, started off actually in the laboratory. And then I moved into uh, doing early phase research uh, for a clinical research organization in Austin, Texas. And from there, I went into later phase trials. And so my background um, was predominantly working with local physicians in all different types of specialty areas who were all new to research that wanted to get started and you know they didn't know how to begin or even how to get ideas off the ground um, as well as you know some experienced researchers out there and things like that so my interest was always like you know the new new people on the block how do you get going how do you get started and you know it's such an enormous mounting at the beginning to think about in terms of like oh gosh you know all of these things we've got to do are there regulations out there you know what's good practice how do you document things you know how do I get 
a protocol written, you know, and then at the end of it, you know, sometimes people forget about the IOB, um, you know, ethical review of their research and how important that is. And like you said, in the past, you know, a lot of institutions or if you've worked in a hospital setting or something like that, you've had an IRB that you've gone to. But when you step outside that world and you go into the private practice sector, you know, you, a lot of times you don't have an affiliation anymore. And so people stop doing research. And what we want to do is just make sure people know that there's options out there um, and there are, you know, independent IRBs out there that can help you get through the process and provide that review for you so that you can actually do um, great research in your private practice setting. Well, and I think that's the, I think that's such a powerful thing. Like when you said, and people stop doing research, right? Meaning yeah. that people get out into the real world, working with real people, doing the on the ground work that is pro- that where research is probably the most salient and <laughs> like that it, that it has the most, it's the most applicable to the experiences that people are having. And yet that's the least researched part of the process in some cases is the part well, out I, in the community. Well, setting. you know, people. Oh, you froze, Sarah. Yes, you know, you're seeing patients. And so what happens is, you know, research gets pushed aside and then, you know, sometimes an opportunity comes up or, you want to collaborate with another colleague and you want to you know, publish or you want to present at a conference. And then all of a sudden, you know, you might have a conference or a, a journal that says, to you, you know, have you had ethical review? And, you know, if you've already done your research, then you're like, oh, oh, gosh, what do I do now? So it's just kind of getting the message out there in terms of, you know, seek out an IOB at the beginning before you even get started and have a conversation with them. And, you know, kind of see if that's something that you want to integrate into your private practice. Um, So we work with, you know, all different types of uh, private practice, you know, type situations um, in terms of, um, you know, things that we've seen. um, It just depends on what type of project you have, what idea that you have. I mean, we've seen things that are along the lines of, you know, conflict resolution. People are Mm. looking at that. Um, recently we had one on EMDR, uh, oh, therapy. Tell us about um, that. I think we, cause we have several people I'm, I'm trained in EMDR. I love it. Um, we have several EMDR therapists. I'd love to hear about how a therapist, um, did some EMDR research within their private practice. If there's stuff that you can share from that, if it's publicly appropriate. Well, this is a little outside the scope of private practice. She actually, uh, is a practicing practicing here in Austin but she actually teamed up and I can actually talk about this because uh it was she uh, had a news story on one of the local news uh explaining what she was doing so um they're looking at EMDR um compared to some traditional therapy message uh therapies and they're doing it with uh some of the local um trauma centers and um like local police departments people that take 911 calls mm. And they're looking to see whether the EMDR has, you know, any um, further thing than traditional methods. And what they're hoping then is that once they've got that information and the results back, that could then open up a whole bigger thing in terms of, you know, receiving grants to move that type of therapy forward in that system. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what they're doing at the moment is, you know, a small pilot type study. um, But it's really interesting to see what these results are going to be, especially for the EMDR community, because then, you know, 
it just opens up more conversations about that therapy. So, yeah, we're we're seeing lots of different types of studies at the moment. Um, We've got other ones that, you know, just private practice people where they're actually looking at the difference between therapies between men and women. Um, They're looking at uh, stress-related things, um, you know, and creative problem-solving, different types of projects Mm -hmm. that, you know, private practice physicians should do. But it all just starts with an idea. You know, someone has an idea, and then, you know, you're kind of, like, trying to figure out, you know, where that's going to take you. And so I know your community, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, at these conferences like ACA um, about, you know, all these different types of things. And it's fascinating to me. Um, if you there's know, a therapist, what, what's out there? Yeah, if there's a therapist in private practice and they have an idea, right? And they say, "Oh my gosh, I'd really like to know blank." And I, like as an aside, there are a lot of therapists who have who specifically chose their master's program based on not having to do research. In other words, they said, "I don't want to write a thesis," and so they did what uh, a master's in, uh, you know, an MA program or a PsyD program instead of a PhD or a master's in science program. Um, I'm super geeky and that didn't even occur to me. I love doing a thesis, like I love doing the research, like I'm super geeky that way. Um, But I think there's a lot of therapists who do not have that background. Do you think that, as a first question, if someone has never done any research before, should should they go down this path of trying to integrate research into their private practice? Or do you recommend that they like do something before they try to launch their first project or what have you before they even consider doing research in private practices? They've never done research before. They don't have any background. They didn't do that as part of their studies. Would you say, you know what, it's going to be a little bit harder, but yeah, you could still do this in private practices. You're just going to have to take a little more time. Or would you say, you know, you'd probably be better off if you did A, B, C, or whatever. I'm personally of the philosophy of, like, you know, let's try and promote great research out there. So an idea usually can lead to something quite amazing. So if you've never had any kind of research background whatsoever, yeah, it's going to be a little bit more, you know, information up front, a lot more learning for you to get to what you need to do. But, you know, we have you know new investigators all the time that you know are saying this is what I'm going to do but I just don't know where to start and so you know you either talk to your community and find somebody that's already done it before or you know you you know you find another entity maybe an independent IOB that's willing to you know walk you through the process and explain to you you know what is needed you know up front you know what kind of training you might want to do provide you with you know websites to go to or guidances to read through but basically you know help educate you in terms of knowing what you need to know so that you don't get into trouble doing research right <laughs> and that's I the think, one thing nobody wants to get into trouble doing I think research. nobody wants to get into trouble but I would also say like it would be a really frustrating thing to and sometimes it happens like even with the best design and research or whatever but to get to the end and go oh crap I like I I didn't do it wrong. I didn't get into trouble necessarily, but had I realized this, I like, and as a basic thing, like I skipped something very important that would have given more weight to this research. 
you know, like, yeah, you, you missed answering, asking a couple of questions as you're interviewing someone. And that would be an, an amazing endpoint, you know, yes. to your study, it would be a great observation or an added part to, you know, you know, your overall, you know, study data that you want to collect, you know, you know, I have that happen a lot that, you know, somebody will start a project and they'll, you know, get into it for a month or so. And then they'll call us up and say, oh, my goodness, you know, would be fantastic if we want, you know, if we could add this in or, you know, we, you know, we really want to do this. You can do that. You can change, you know, and amend, you know, your study design as you, as you go. Obviously you want to try and get it as, you know, overall uh, concise and, you know, the way you want it to be to begin with, but, you know, you can't change things as you go along. So, you know, at any point, you know, you can add things into your amendment or, you know, amend things to add it in um, and, and just, you know, change, change and keep adding to your uh, adding to your study. Gosh, that was a bit long-winded. We might have to cut that a bit. <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. <clears throat> so let's say... I rambled there. No, it's, it's totally good. It's totally good. So let's say um, somebody is in that place. They have the idea. Right now they know that even if they don't have any research background, that this is something that they could do. It's going to take a little bit more work. And now they're trying to figure out what are the steps that I'm going to take so I can put together. So I have the background. I can put together a good protocol. I can get my people together, all this stuff. Um, <clears throat> at what point could Integ review as an IRB, at what point can you guys kind of step in and be a support or guide in that process? Do you have resources available for them? Is this something where it would behoove them to call you up on the telephone and just have a conversation, even if they feel like they're at the, the Uber beginning stages? What are the steps that they should take before they reach out to somebody like you? I personally think that if you if you're at the very beginning stages, you know, talk to an IRB and get them to give you some feedback on it because, you know, they've probably seen an awful lot of studies either similar to yours or, you know, they've, you know, seen designs that worked and haven't worked and they can give you some feedback on what you're trying to do. Um they can also help guide you along the way in terms of, you know, what type of reviews you need because there's different types of reviews out there. Um there's different categories and so, you know, they can help you direct you in terms of what you need to do and they can also you know help with uh things like you know writing your informed consent there's some IOBs out there that will do that for you if you don't have time and there's other ones out there that will provide you know templates for you where you can simply cut and paste your study design into the document you know save a huge amount of time and effort on your part um but I would suggest, you know, if you have the ability, call them up front. But if, you know, if you're starting to go through it, I mean, just make sure you've got some IRB on board with you before you start the research. Mm-hmm. That's very, very important. Um, you can't start, you know, collecting the data until you've had that IRB take a look, review and approve that study. So um, finding finding a, you know, a collaborator, you know, basically an extension of your research team, I think it's a really important part. And I think an IRB should be part of that because that's, you know, that's yeah. what we're there for. We're- I think that makes like complete sense. I mean, that's when I think about going through my, my thesis, I remember like collecting even the people on my committee. And I feel like that that piece of getting people with different skills and different strengths really added to the process. And it did inform my research in a very powerful way. I made sure to bring somebody 
into the conversation, right? However you want to say it into the consultation, the conversation that really knew stats in a more (laughs) deep way than I did. I brought somebody in who um, had specialization in working and had done research in this field before. I brought someone else in that I just really liked and who made me feel really good (laughs) that I liked working with them. And that was my thesis chair because that was someone who could keep me moving through and that I, that I liked getting feedback from, you know, just to make the process not so miserable versus someone else like, oh, this person's really smart. But the idea of like talking with them about my heart and my research and something important to me is like makes me feel a little sick to my stomach. That's not a good person to be, <laughs> have a part of like my, my committee, you know, you don't pick that person. Um, But no, I think it's true. I think I think you need to find a support team, you know, whether or not that's, you know, mentors within you within your community, you know, and and other outside people as well. I think it's really important to find that support system because, you know, you're not going to ask me about statistics. That wasn't my strong point. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it's a case of like you might not know the answer, but, you know, people will know people who who know things. And, you know, you're eventually going to get the answer or at least several options for you to be able to say, okay, you know, that's going to be the best one for me yeah that um I'm sort of fascinated by the, by the idea too that you were talking about like finding different review boards or different IRBs for different specializations that there's more programs like yours kind of out there in the world um depending on what kind of research someone's going to be doing and, and what what their specialization may be and obviously you are at ACA um, so we kind of know that you've worked with clinicians, therapists, psychotherapists, psychologists, things like that. Um, so you have specialization in there. Um, but that if somebody came to you and it wasn't a good fit for what you guys did, if you weren't the best um, fit for that process, that you'd be able to then, you know, point them in the right direction and, and give them the best, you know, advice of, oh, here's exactly who you talk to for that type of research. Absolutely. I think it's all about that networking. I mean, I do have clients that will call us and they'll start telling me about their research. And I I know that that's not something that we can do. Um, I mean, I think it behooves anyone then to stop and say, hey, look, you know, this 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 isn't something that we can do for you. But I do know some people. Let me put you in touch with them. Um, and I think, you know, they'll be able to help you. So I think one of the greatest questions to ask up front when you're you know talking to experience in what I'm doing here um, you know are you going to help me along the way um, and and if, if, if you're not the expert in this who should that who should I talk to yeah. um, and any good IOB should be able to recommend somebody else if they're not capable of doing it yeah I'm sort of um, I all of a sudden I have this idea and this thought that it would be really an amazing thing to have uh, like you were talking about the network to have like a core or a group a place for therapists who are in private practice who are doing research to kind of like come together. Um, I've noticed there's a, there used to, used to be a lot on LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn groups. Now there's a lot more Facebook groups and there'll be groups of therapists from around the world who are coming together for a specific thing. Maybe they're talking about marketing and private practice, but also there's Gottman trained therapists who are coming together. There's EMDR therapists who are coming together to just to share resources, not clinical information, but just resources and connecting and making it easier to make referrals. How great would that be to have something like that specific for specifically for clinicians 
who want to integrate research and to kind of pull those people together. Um, do you know of anything like that? Or is that maybe something you guys would consider kind of um, spearheading? Is that like fascinating to you too, that idea? I, I, I love the whole networking thing. I think yeah. it's fantastic. Um, I don't know of any, any one particular at the moment that's specific for like private practice because unfortunately that word private comes up and it seems like people don't want to discuss things amongst each other um but you know i i there are some really great um organizations out there right now that are, are helping um you know researchers start up um and i will get that information to you um okay. i'm trying to think off the top of my head right now of specific ones but um yeah, there's different organizations out there that are, you know, there for clinical researchers, um, you know, professional researchers um, and like, you know, sites specifically. But like it, like like you said, I don't know one that's just for independent, you know, researchers mm-hmm. um, per se. I think that would just be fascinating. And I think it would be such an interesting way to encourage more clinical research and encourage more conversation. And I, I know sometimes at the point that people are starting to do research, you know, there's some kind of thing of like, I don't want someone else to go and, you know, take my research or what have you, but just having a place to have the conversation um, and to connect in with resources and to be able to say, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, um, you know, where's the best place to look and do a lot of therapists don't know how to pull up what's already been done, you know, like the very basic steps or what have you. And then to also be able to pull together and say, look, I want to pull together a community, a committee of people um, who are like-minded and I'd be happy to be on your committee and we can do consultation together. Um, you know, people can sign non-disclosure agreements, whatever they need to do to do it in a safe way, but just kind of a, a hub um, for therapists to come together, I think would be really fascinating. So anybody who's listening, maybe be thinking about that if you are a research-minded uh, clinician. Um, maybe that will be yeah. there. Uh, message us. <laughs> Send an email to help at Zinni and we'll uh, add it down into the comment section if you do that. Um, and I'm so, I'm, thank you for offering to send over those resources as well. Um, the other resources of just places to get connected, um, to clinical work. Um, certainly I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of conferences around the, there's a lot of conferences around the country that are doing things. And honestly, I'm not familiar exactly with what they're doing. I mean, there's the EMDRIA conference coming up, mm-hmm. um, in, in, uh, Seattle area. And I don't know if they've got a research portion of it, but I think those are some of the ones that maybe, you know, as people start talking about it more, they'll add, you know, maybe that to the agenda at some point or something like that. So people have more of a conversation and are able to network specifically about research and how to do it. Yeah, I think that's the the piece is that a lot of like when I've gone to EMDRia and, um, you know, for someone to... I'm trying to think if I've ever seen that particular topic, how to do research in private practice. Um, I think that could be at every therapist conference, but I don't see it. Um, And I also think it's sort of a hard one to do as like an hour talk, 
right? That it's something that's more of an ongoing conversation um, that's needed and necessary. Um, and so it makes it sort of hard. And also you end up with all these little like offshoots. So you have a group of, you know, 20 people that go into this training or at this conference or a hundred people over here, there are thousands of, like tens of thousands of therapists in private practice who could be doing clinical research. There's probably easily hundreds or, or a thousand that want to be doing it right now at this moment for them to be able to have a place that they can continue that conversation and even, you know, to build relationships and meet up with people at some of these events and maybe spark some, you know, spark some of this, um, I think is really powerful. Uh, so I, I'm always fascinated by the community aspect. And that's one of the things I love about what you're doing with that, with um, having an RB is that it really is t- helping people tap into a community um, that they kind of lose access to once they're out of the university environment. Um, now they have a new research community exactly. they can tap back into. Um, and I think, and And I really see, I remember when I was in school, um, IRB was kind of thought of as this like scary process that like you have to do it through IRB because otherwise something bad's going to happen or you're not going to graduate on time or whatever if you don't get your stuff through IRB. It was like this, it was just this sort of like icky, what is that? And I really see it and I saw it after I went through the process is like IRB is really cool they can give you great feedback. They can give you good recommendations. Like I wish I had wished that they had brought, you know, sort of like the IRB environment into the classroom to like talk through, like, this is just what it is. And Hey, we're here to help you. And we don't want this to be a pain in the ass. And we don't want you to, you know, have to push out your research. We're really just trying to make sure that this is easy and simple and doable and nobody gets hurt and no one's suing you. Like that's all we're here for. Um, we want you to do great research. We want to support your idea. Um, and for people to be able to like see that and feel that, um, I think is really a powerful shift. Yeah, I think, I think an IOB process should be uh, the least stressful part of doing your research. I think, you know, the IOB should be the ones that, uh, you know, properly, but it shouldn't be like, oh my gosh, this, this, you know, huge, huge uh, cloud over your head, but, you know, oh, I've got to get an IAB review and I don't even know where to start and stuff like that. It shouldn't be that at all. It should be just, you know, an ongoing thing. And then if you develop a relationship with an IAB, you know, then you know that you've basically got somebody else, like you said, in your pocket um, that can help you. Just, mm-hmm. you know, so it really just depends on, you know, what your intent is and what you're trying to do. Perfect. And from a budgeting perspective, Um, obviously when it's part of, um, part of, you know, university, that's kind of built into your fees or what have you, that you have that support when somebody is going through and they're deciding that they want to integrate research into their private practice and they're looking at their business plan, they need to budget in for getting these kinds of resources. Um, I, without even asking specifically like what your fees are or whatever, like, I, I think a lot of people don't have any sense of like what they should be budgeting for clinical research or, or how they might tap into these services or, oh my goodness, like, do I need to be saving up 20 grand before I start my research so I can get support or what have you? Do you have any recommendations about how people go about figuring out 
how to budget for this type of support as part of their business plan or, you know, where to start that conversation? Absolutely. I think that should be one of the you know main questions you ask an IRB because obviously when you're outside the institutional setting, um, you know, most of the IRBs will be, you know, a for-profit entity. Um, find out from the IRB, you know, first of all, you know, what type of review you need because usually the cost is, you know, associated with the type of review. So, mm. you know, the minimal risk type studies are usually don't cost as much as, you know, if you have to send something full board. And most of the studies that people are going to be doing in private practice in um, your setting, most of them are minimal risk studies. Um, so they shouldn't cost, you know, as much. It won't need to go to a full convened board meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, but ask up front, you know, ask them to spell it out for you exactly. There shouldn't be any hidden costs. You should know exactly what you're doing um, and find out whether or not that's something that you can work with. And most of the time I should think that, you know, the costs are um, – comparable to you know what you're looking in terms of to figure out your budget mm-hmm. so and when you like you're saying minimal risk versus like a fully convened board because we're not taking blood from people we're not like sawing anything off we're not giving people medication <laughs> you know like we're not doing all these other things so yeah. that's what you when you're saying minimal risk you're saying that's the piece we're not doing something that's yeah the there's Ah, you cut out, Sarah. Sarah. Oh, there you are. Sorry, you cut out. Um, Can you hear me, Sarah? I lost you there for a second. I lost you too. Okay, so the last thing that I heard, um, uh, talking about the idea of like minimal risk, and that like what we're doing obviously is not, uh, it, it has few risks. Um, can, and you were going to respond to that, I think. Oh, you're getting really choppy. You are too, sorry. Oh no, this is why I don't usually do Skype is because of this one. Okay, so... <laughs> So minimal risk. Minimal okay. risk. Let me explain. Okay. So um, we talked earlier about the different types of reviews and expedited review is one of them. And it's got several categories in it. And that's kind of where most of the minimal risk studies fall. And for, for what you, you know, you might be doing in private practice, um, you know, interviews um, where you're doing sort of like, you know, um, uh, sort of like, you know, evaluations of different therapies and stuff like that, most of those will fall into the minimal risk category. Now, I'll, I'll give you a little caveat. If you're starting to, you know, delve into um, topics of a highly sensitive nature, then sometimes, you know, an IAB might consider that greater than minimal risk. But I would say 99% of the time, um, any projects that we see um, are at least, min- you know, expedited review. So minimal risk studies. Um, so just... Easier for easier for the private practice physician, um, and also you know it doesn't need to go to a full board uh, meeting either. It can be reviewed by one single reviewer um, on an IRB side, so costs are less. Ah, um, and time and time frames, you know, time frame too is you know usually a, a little quicker on those types of projects because you know 
um, it, there's turnaround times from when you, you send something to an IOB for it to get back should, you know, I've seen ranges, but, you know, our, our range is usually about four business days or less from, oh, wow. you know, us getting it from you, asking questions, making sure, going back and forth maybe with the reviewer if they have, have any clarifications to the documents coming back to you and you're going to be able to start your study. So um, it shouldn't be a long, drawn-out process with IRB review. It shouldn't take, you know, you shouldn't have to think ahead like months in terms of, oh, gosh, you know, I've got a plan now for starting something in November. Um, it should be a fairly straightforward process. Perfect. And so um, Sarah's, uh, her, the organization she's with, her, their website is www.integreview.com, I-N-T-E-G review.com. Um, so the first step, I, I'm going to make sure that I've got this. The first step when you have some research, you have an idea that you feel like you want to explore is that they could actually just go to your website, send an email, or give you guys a call to start the conversation. Um, Absolutely. You can direct them, give them some resources, and say, here's what you need to get together in order to go to this process with us, or here's who you should talk to. Um, you can, they can get uh, maybe even like a general quote based on the idea that's already kind of there, where you might be able to say, that sounds like minimal risk. That sounds like expedited review. This is about how much you should budget for this process for this review. And then they know what they need to put together. And then at the point that they're then ready to go to that next step, they have their protocols together. They've pulled together those resources, what have you. Um, and they get ready to submit. For example, with you guys, it could be ready to go in a week after that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, ask the question, will you handhold me through this process if I'm new? And I think most IOB should do that for you. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, since Skype is uh, clearly telling us that we've been talking too long because they're getting <laughs> cranky, we're going to wrap this up today. Sarah, um, is there anything else that you'd like people to know um, or that you'd like to share um, uh, before we wrap up for today? No, I think that was great. I uh, I will definitely send you some more information that you can you know you can share on your website. Um, and then uh, I just like to thank you for bringing me into the conversation today. It's been fabulous. Of course, of course. Thank you too. All right, guys. Again, that is um, the wonderful Sarah Atwood. You can tell she's wonderful and kind. And it sounds like she might even hold your hand if they're the right kind of IRB uh, place for you. Uh, you can find out more at uh, integreview.com. This will be in the uh, show notes or what have you. Um, so you can uh, just click the link from there. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.